0: This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 52. We'll begin with a brief summation of the book of Joshua, chapters 4 through 7, and follow with a consideration of old timey weapons of mass destruction and ancient astronauts after the recap. And be sure to keep an ear out for all those sitcomy moments. They're a laugh riot. <laughs> Finally, the last straggler makes his way across the dry riverbed of the Jordan into Canaan, and thus the children of Israel, the Jewish people, have crossed over from being a desert-wandering people to a settled people, or at least a people about to begin their settlement project. But first things first, a biblical selfie. A monument to this moment. God tells Yehoshua to pick 12 men to hoist 12 of the stones that the Kohanim stood upon while they held the ark and stemmed the river's flow. And these standing stones, along with the other dozen fetched earlier from the riverbed, will stand at Gilgal, the Jewish stonehenge, and serve as a real conversation starter, especially with the youngsters who would surely ask... What the hell is that? I don't know what the hell that is. After this miraculous event, quote, the Lord made Joshua great in the eyes of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the day of his life. Which is pretty impressive, but considering how the people treated Moshe, I wouldn't count on that esteem and fear lasting for too long. (laughs) Cut to chapter five, to the palaces of the Amorite kings, where each one in turn expresses shock and terror, their hearts melting in fear. As one drops his mug of wine. As another falls off his throne. As another falls off his porcelain throne. Then, God tells Yehoshua to circumcise the Jews of the place, which is now called Giv'at Haorlot, which translates as the Hill of the Foreskins. Why did Joshua do this, you wonder? It seems that though all the men leaving Egypt were circumcised, the boys born in the desert were not. And so the men recuperated in Gilgal, so named, the text says, because, quote, I have rolled away from you the shame of Egypt. The Hebrew verb in this verse, galoti, puns on Gilgal, which is close to galgal, which means wheel or circle. And then, it's Pesach, the 14th day of the first month, and the Jews celebrate on the plains of Jericho, where the text reports that they ate the produce of the land, matzah and roasted corn. Then, verse 12 relates, The next day, the man, the miraculous wonder food God provided for the Jews in the desert, ceased. With this, the last vestige of Egyptian bondage and desert wandering faded away into memory. Some time passes. The Jews are still in camp near Jericho, and Joshua, while checking out the walled city he is about to attack, encounters an armed man. Identify yourselves! You will identify first. State your identity! It turns out that the man is no man, but a commander of the Lord's army. I'll break you! And Joshua immediately falls on his face. And the commander tells him to take off his shoes because, quote, the place upon which you stand is holy. Now, where did we hear that before? Hmm. With Joshua's former boss, Moshe, at the burning bush, of course. So prepare yourselves for a major case of theophany, where God speaks to Joshua face-to-face with a situation room briefing. Each day, for six days, the fighting men are to circumambulate around the wall city of Jericho. With them, seven priests, seven shofars, they will process before the Ark of the Covenant. But on the seventh day, during the seventh circumambulations, the Kohanim are to blow their shofars, and the people are to shout and holler, and then the walls of Jericho will come tumbling down. Yoshua relays this plan to the people, and surprisingly, the Jews follow the instructions to the letter. And when the shofars finally blast, and the people begin to shout, the walls of Jericho fall down. And according to plan, the Jews slaughter everyone and everything living inside, except for Rachav and her family, and set aside all the valuables for God. And then they set the city on fire. Now that's the fire That's a fire Look at that. Joshua then drops a serious curse on anyone who would rebuild Jericho, quote, with his firstborn shall he found it and with his youngest set up its portals, which means in common parlance that any fool who seeks to rebuild Jericho will bury his eldest son at the beginning of the project and bury his youngest at its completion. God damn! But it seems despite the ban that someone took from the spoils. God damn! So when the Jews go out and fight the second city state of Ai, they lose. Yehoshua falls on his face again, this time out of shame. (laughs) And God tells him to consecrate the people and conduct a lottery to determine who violated the ban. Finally, the perpetrator is identified, Achan ben Karmi from the tribe of Yehuda, who says, yeah, well, I I did take some stuff. The Babylonian made robe was just too beautiful. And uh, the gold and the silver. And yeah, okay, I took it. I took it. Fine. I took it. So Yehoshua takes back all the goods and orders Achan, all of the spoils he stole, as well as his family and all of his possessions to be placed in the Valley of Achor. And then he says, quote, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. And the people proceed to stone Achan and his family and then burn whatever remains into ashes. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. First of all, any discussion about this portion in the book of Joshua should begin with mention of an episode of Radiolab, a brilliant podcast, quote, about curiosity where sound illuminates ideas and the boundaries blur between science, philosophy, and human experience. Entitled The Walls of Jericho, host Robert Kralrich and Jada Bumrod invited nine shofar blowers to, quote, pit physics against a Bible story. I'll put a link up at the next Jew and at the show pages on Facebook and Google+, and you can click on over to find out if physics prevailed. So, in this week's portion, we finally get to see some action. After all the build-up over four books of the Torah, we experience the first engagement in the campaign to conquer Canaan. And it's a spectacular event. The circumambulations, the Ark of the Covenant leading the procession of the shofar-blowing priests, decked out in their elaborate regalia, and the people marching behind in complete silence. You know, it's clear what the Shofar's are doing, but what's the function of the Ark of the Covenant in this battle? There's a picture of it right here. That's it. Good God. Yes, that's just what the Hebrews thought. Uh, now what's that supposed to be coming out of there? Lightning. Uh, Fire, power of God, or something. Beginning to understand Hitler's interest in this. Thing. Oh yes, the Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. If you consider the prayer recited while the ark is opened in the synagogue, Marcus Brody might not be too far off. The mark, the prayer, directly quotes from Numbers 10, verse 35, Now it was, whenever the ark was to march on, Moshe would say, Arise to attack, O God, that your enemies may scatter, that those who hate you may flee before you. The ark of the covenant, like Greek fire or the scorpion bomb, was indeed a weapon of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein has gone to elaborate lengths, spent enormous sums, taking great risks to build and keep weapons of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein is determined to get his hands on a nuclear bomb. Nuclear weapon. Nuclear weapon. Nuclear weapon. Active chemical munitions, bunkers, mobile production facilities. We know he's got chemical weapons. He's got him, he's got him, he's got him. But was that God's intention when he asked Betzalel to build the Ark of the Covenant? Or was the Ark an artifact designed by an advanced civilization? And considering that possibility, you've now suddenly found yourself thrown headfirst first into what's called the Ancient Astronaut Hypothesis. The Ancient Astronaut Hypothesis applies Arthur C. Clarke's third law, quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So you have folks like Alfred Russell Wallace and Eric Von Daniken and Zacharia Stitchin and Robert Temple, among countless others who have argued that uh, intelligent extraterrestrial beings visited Earth and made contact with humans thousands, if not tens of thousands of years ago think the the monolith and our hominid ancestors from 2001 A Space Odyssey, except that this contact didn't just give our predecessors the idea of using a bone as a weapon. It also framed human cultures, the development of technologies, and in most cases evolved into different religions. These pseudoscientists cite all kinds of evidence such as the nazca line figures in southern peru or stonehenge or the figures on easter island or the pyramids at giza and also this ancient electric battery that was found in the museum uh, in the national museum of iraq that was dated to the turn of the first millennium give or take a century the torah coincidentally provides some evidence as well specifically the book of genesis chapter 6 which, if you recall, talks about the sons of God, coupling with human women and producing a race of heroes and giants. And then, of course, there are the Nephilim. These sons of God appear again in the apocryphal book of Enoch, where they are described as a group of 200 angels called watchers. These watchers descend to Earth and, against God's wishes, breed with humans, and they teach humans about metallurgy, metalworking, cosmetics, sorcery, astrology, astronomy, and meteorology. God, if you recall, then decides to reboot the planet, but to ensure humanity's survival, uh, Noah is forewarned of the oncoming destruction, and he builds an ark, blah, 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 you know that story. Now, in Hindu mythology, the gods and their avatars travel from place to place in flying vehicles. These vehicles are often referred to as either flying chariots, flying cars, or vimanas. So, was the Ark of the Covenant a WMD? Did it vanquish enemies? Did it flatten mountains? Well, in a word no. If you look at the Ark's effectiveness as a WMD, its win-loss record is not all that mind-blowing. No pun intended, Belloc. Okay, Jericho was an impressive win. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down, but on the second outing, at the second battle of Ebenezer in the first book of Samuel, Israel loses, even though the Ark is there to help. And what's more, the Ark is taken by the Philistines as a spoil of war. Yes, it did wreak some, you know, havoc and pranks in the temple of Dagon and Ashdod and give a lot of Philistines hemorrhoids, but it didn't bring the Philistines to their knees by any means. Then, after its unceremonious return to the Jews, at some point over the subsequent centuries, the Ark goes missing. Was it seized by Shishak, pharaoh of Egypt, and placed in Tanis, as the Nazis believed, or was it taken by the Babylonians as a trophy during their sack of Jerusalem? Or was it hidden by the Kohanim, who foresaw its impending capture, and removed it to the second temple that was standing in elephantine Egypt? Or, as recorded in the Kebra Nagast, Ethiopia's chronicle of its royal line, did Menelik, product of the union of Queen of Sheba and King Solomon, facilitate its transport to Aksum when firstborn sons of some Israelite nobles stole the Ark and carried it with them secretly to Ethiopia? Or, could it be sitting in a U.S. Army warehouse somewhere in Area 51? No one knows. But what we do know is that the Ark of the Covenant had a power that transcended mere WMDs. It had psychological power to inspire Jewish warriors into acts of daring and bravery in combat. And more importantly, it scared the bejesus out of Israel's enemies. So in that sense, Marcus Brody, I guess, was right. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. Or at least, it seems to think so. If you like what you heard today tell a friend send them an email to say hey you should check out TanakhCast." Or you could do the social media thing and like TanakhCast at the show page on Facebook or Google+. Or you could leave a kind word in the comments section of thenextjew.com. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store. Or find TanakhCast at Stitcher Smart Radio or SoundCloud and leave a similarly kind word there. It's a small thing, really, but it will help me and help other people find TanakhCast. And I thank you in advance for that. And encourage you to come on back and join us next week-ish. For episode 53, we continue with the book of Joshua chapters 8 through 11.